Welcome to our 29th video on the Christian basics, or for my Lutheran teenagers out there, confirmation. Every week we aim to bring you biblical content that will help you in your new or emerging walk with Jesus Christ. I'm Evan McClanahan. I'm the pastor at First Lutheran Down in Texas. And for a third video, I'm joined by Dr. Jordan Cooper of Just and Center Ministries. You can check out his podcast. It's called Just and Center. It's a YouTube channel as well, justincenter.org is where to go to learn more about what he does. And this week we're looking at how Lutherans are different and also have a lot in common with some of our closest uh, ministry friends, if you will, our closest traditional allies, the Calvinist tradition or the Presbyterian tradition, as it's often known. So Dr. Jordan Cooper, having come out of that tradition, will uh, help us find the answers. Let's roll. Well, Jordan, thanks for joining me for a third time. We're, yeah. we're really trying to understand sort of what Lutherans believe, where they're different, you know, why be a Lutheran, and, and sort of, you know, we can't help but to be products of history to a degree. So in the 1500s, there actually were lots of Reformations going on. I don't know that Lutherans always sort of understand that. You had an English Reformation, which has its own bizarre kind of hallmarks with Henry VIII and divorces yeah, yeah. and things like that. You have the Anabaptist Reformation, which was really quite radical. You know, they destroyed Christian artwork, and um, they they refused they um, they they objected to the doctrine of infant baptism, for example. Um, you had the, the Lutheran Reformation, of course, and then a little bit later, you have a guy named John Calvin, who was not quite a contemporary of, of Luther. Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli, who we talked about, was a kind of predecessor in some ways of Calvinism. Um, but kind of coming from Switzerland, although John Calvin was French. But the, the Calvinist Reformation or the Reformed movement, um, you know, there's overlap with Lutherans, a lot of really key, I think, agreement. But ultimately, we've kind of been these cousins that, like, can't partake in the Lord's Supper together. We uh, don't always agree on baptism, although Calvinists traditionally baptized infants as well. Um, but they're kind of like these close cousins that there seems to be antagonism between our two traditions. Um, and so I think it's really worthwhile to understand where Lutherans and Calvinists sort of part company um, and where we where we're in still, you know, good, good friendship and fellowship. And by the way, when we say Calvinist, there, there's not like a Calvinist church, per se. You, in America, you typically Presbyterians. Although, like Lutherans, there are sort of progressive or leftist or liberal Presbyterians right, who are right. you know, Presbyterian in name only. But you know, there are there are Presbyterian, Dutch Reformed, or Reformed would be the name. Reformed Baptists uh, actually, you know, have some differences on baptism with other, you know, so on and so forth. But you kind of came out of that. Well, you did come out of the Reformed tradition. And so, where do you think the the similarities are, and where kind of the main differences? Yeah, so there, I did come from that that background. Um, my family was part of a, a Presbyterian church plant, and that was the beginning of, of high school. So that was kind of the time when I was starting to like think through what I believed, you know, or what the Bible really taught, you know, at that age. And, mm -hmm. and I ended up going to a Reformed college. So at the time when I was really kind of formulating what does the Christian faith mean, it was very much in a kind of Reformed um, context. So, so that shaped a lot of my kind of early thinking about, about scripture and about who God was. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was in college that I was at a reformed college. I started to 
hear that Lutherans even existed besides the kind of left-wing <laughs> branches that I was familiar yeah. with. Yeah. And then I realized, they oh, wait. all the headlines. I know. And then I realized, yeah. oh, wait, there's like a, a great uh, confessional Lutheran church like down the road from where I grew up. And I had no idea. I just figured mm. they were one of these churches that didn't believe anything. So um, yeah. th- that led to an examination that I did in, in college of like, what, what are these Lutherans? What do they, what do they believe? And then I, I kind of discovered what some of those similarities and differences were. Ultimately I became Lutheran and, and um, that wasn't because I, you know, hate the reformed tradition. I think there were a lot of great things about it too. There's, there's a lot that I do did appreciate from that, um, from that background. So in terms of areas that let's start maybe with, with areas of similarity, when we're talking about the reformed tradition and the Lutheran, both of those groups are, they believe in sola scriptura, right? They, uh, the reformed also are going to say that scripture is ultimately our, our highest authority. Uh, the Reformed also are not going to kind of reject all past authority in the way that like the Anabaptists did. Mm. And they're often called the radical reformers because they kind of go off the deep end of like throw everything out, destroy, you know, they're destroying images. They're uh, do, doing all sorts of just kind of wild stuff and like rethinking the Trinity and, and just basic Christian doctrine. So the, the Reformed are definitely not there. They're like, no, we agree with the ecumenical creeds. They're still going to use... Um, the Church Fathers, if you read John Calvin, for example, um, he cites Augustine and John Chrysostom, two of the great Church Fathers. I mean, he cites them more than any of the other fathers, but it's very consistent. Like, it's very clear that he has a, a lot of respect for them. Um, so in that way, there's going to be similarity in that they are not, the Reformed tradition is not saying, let's just throw out all Christian history and start over, whereas the Anabaptists kind of are doing that. And you see that in some of American Protestantism today, too, that there are groups who just kind of ignore church history. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that that's that's key. The Reformed also are going to uh, believe in sola fide, or justification through faith alone, like the Lutheran tradition. They, will, they believe that we are righteous before God um, because of the merit of Christ, because of Christ's work, not because of what we do, and that it is faith alone that receives the righteousness of Jesus. So those are pretty key areas, right? Those are those are a couple of the areas that, that I began with to say these are the key Lutheran teachings. So so far, like, hey, we're we're definitely in alignment, and I think we should honor and celebrate those areas of alignment. But then we get to some of the differences, and there are differences that really do matter. And and there have been some attempts in the past to say kind of ignore the differences and say, hey, we can, uh, you know, we can kind of form one church and kind of ignore the differences over the Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper, this and that. And it hasn't worked well. It hasn't worked well. Ultimately, when those attempts happen, the church becomes reformed and Lutheran identity is lost. That for whatever reason, that's what happens. So the best thing we can do with the reformed is work together in ways that we can without saying we're the same. (laughs) I think that's how a good ecumenical work works is like, hey, we recognize our differences. Let's lay them out. Let's not pretend we agree. But then let's also celebrate where we agree and figure out we work together. So I think that's that's kind of been my approach there. So if we're looking at what the, the major differences are, then um, the Reformed tradition has a very strong doctrine of predestination. And this is not the only thing that's different. And this is not the only thing the Reformed Church believes. I mean, this kind of characterizes that's all they care about is predestination. And that's not true. But nonetheless, there is a really key difference in the way that they view this idea of predestination. So for the Reformed tradition, Jesus died only for a certain group of people. 
right, which we call particular redemption or, or more popularly limited atonement. And that really is going to be the key difference in, in the whole predestination question so that God in eternity past elected a particular group of people to be saved. Then he elected to not save others, to leave them in their sin. It's described in different ways. And Jesus then came to secure the salvation of the elect, that one group of people, and that the Holy Spirit then applies that salvation to the elect only, and that all of the elect, who are the only ones who are ever justified or regenerated, the ones who are ever saved, then will necessarily, all of them will be finally saved. So they can never lose that salvation that they have. And those are elements of the reform system that the Lutheran tradition has um, very much rejected. Yeah. And in a lot of ways. Yeah. Go ahead. So we, we, we'll point to a couple of texts that are, of course, argued on both sides, but yeah, yeah. Uh, basically that seem to suggest that Jesus died for the whole world. Um, yeah. I mean, John 2, First uh, John 2, rather, I think says that. Yeah, First John quite, 2. Quite explicitly. Two, two. Yes. Yeah, uh, and I know you've done uh, videos on that that verse and brought it up many times, of course, but es essentially the argument is that, well, it seems to say that Jesus died, you know, really for, for everybody and for everyone. Now, right. this is, I think, a it, it's a, a hallmark of Lutheranism to me, too, seems to, and we are kind of made fun of for paradox, you know, like we embrace paradox, these kind of side-by-side -side truths. Yeah, the Calvinists like to make fun of us because of that. Yeah, yeah like, oh, you Lutherans just love mystery and so on and so forth. It's like, well, you know, it, isn't it okay if if we don't understand everything about God down, down to the letter. Yeah. In fact, I would say that's kind of the problem with, with Rome on the one hand and Calvinist on the other is that they both yes. end up trying to explain things, Rome philosophically and, and maybe the reformed logically. And of course we don't think God is illogical. We just don't think we know everything about God. Right. But, you know, so we would hold these two things together that Jesus died for all people and all people are not saved. Yes. So, Calvinists would say, well, if you think Jesus died for all people, then you're a universalist. You just think everyone is saved regardless. And we say, no, we don't think that's the case. And they say, well, why don't you believe in limited atonement? And so we, what's our answer to that? You know, I mean, I have an answer, but you always formulate it so well. Oh yeah. Thanks. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the question maybe is, is best phrased, why are some saved and others not? Mm. And from, from the Calvinist perspective, you could say that God is the answer to both of those questions. Right. Some are saved because God has elected them. Some are not saved because God has chosen to pass them over and not and not give them his grace. They can even say things like, well, God has given them a, a kind of external offer of grace, or they've heard, maybe heard the gospel, but that's not the same as the spirit actually doing any work in them. Okay. They would say he, he hasn't. It's it's external. Um, but then, you know, you have other groups and a lot of, you know, evangelicals, not all of them, but a lot of them will say, well, we're the reason why why we're saved, and we're the reason why we're not saved if we're not saved. Mm -hmm. So they they answer similarly, like why are some saved and others not? Well, man, well because yeah. I chose to be saved, right? And then maybe this guy over here chose not to be saved. So that's what we call like decision theology. You see it in yes. evangelical right. Baptist circles, Anabaptist kind of that whole tradition a little bit. But so yeah, so it's all on man in that case. Yes, exactly. So, but Lutherans would say, well, we can't really answer that two questions with the same answer. Mm. So we would say, well, why are some saved? God's grace. Right? We would say, if I'm saved, it's not because I made a decision, right? It's if I'm saved and this guy's not, we can't maybe explain how all of that works. But what I know I can't say it's because there's something better about me than that person, because that's just not true. And 
But then when we get to the other end of the question, which says, well, um, why are others not saved? Well, then we can't say God as we would in the first question. We'd say man. Like if you're not saved, it's because you rejected God's grace, not because God has chosen not to save you. Um, and that is, you know, a paradox. It's we, we don't quite know how all of those pieces fit together, but that's ultimately what we're left with in Scripture. And, and a good just one illustration of this that maybe helps scripturally is to say, uh, look at the way that Jesus speaks about the preparation of heaven for those who are saved, who are called the elect. There's nothing wrong with using the term the elect, right? That is a biblical phrase. Calvinists don't get it out of nowhere. Um, yeah. And and then the way that he describes hell being prepared for those who are not elect or not saved. Well, Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you, right? Jesus says, uh, he's going, he's preparing, he's doing the work. But when he speaks about those who are in hell, he actually refers to hell as that which is prepared, not for the non-elect, but for the devil and his angels, right? You don't have the same kind of preparation mm. there. It's not active, it was really prepared as a punishment for the devil and his angels, but people choose to send themselves there. Yeah. So this inequality there is really one that is in the text. Another great example, and I can go on and on about this, but I'll, I know we have to keep this brief. Uh, another example is uh, in the parable of the, the wedding feast, where you know you have these wedding garments that, that you need to get into the wedding feast. And there's been all sorts of debate about what the garment is. I think the garment ultimately is Jesus, but that's kind of another discussion, I guess. But what's important is at the end of that parable, Jesus gives a summary of the meaning of what he's talking about here. And he says, many are called, but few are chosen. What's so interesting about that is he, he's in the parable, all of these people are invited and they're invited to heaven. I mean, that's the picture. And they choose those who aren't there have chosen to do something else instead. They've chosen mm -hmm. to reject it. But what's so interesting is Jesus then ends the parable not by saying, because some choose and some don't, many are called, but few are chosen. In other words, those who do get there are only there because they chose to get there. But in the parable, those who aren't there are only not there because they chose to reject the invitation. Hmm. So this inequality, maybe it doesn't make sense to our minds. It doesn't mean, as you said, it's not because God is illogical or contradictory. The issue is not in, in God. The issue is just we don't have all the information. We don't quite know how it works. Yeah. And, and that's that we should be okay with that. Yeah. A lot of these issues too, you know, for, from my point of view, I feel like, you know, we do get to that point where it's like, I, I, I just don't see, I, I think they're important. I think we need to talk about them, but there are times when I think these are just things that are totally in God's purview right. and in God's time, God's understanding of time. I mean, we're very limited in our scope of, of knowledge and perspective and, um, so in, in some ways, that means that some of these doctrines really don't bother me tremendously. Like the, the doctrine of limited atonement personally doesn't bother me tremendously. Um, maybe it should as a Lutheran, but it, it doesn't because I, there's a point at which I'm like, well, I don't, I, I don't really know how this all works sort of in God's world. And what I do know, and actually I think Calvinists would agree with this, tactically, if you will, practically our, our ministries, our outreach, we don't know who the elect are. So we, we do our ministry you know, sharing the gospel with all people. Now, I know it can get into debates about like, well, can you say to someone that Jesus died for them? You know, that's where kind yeah. of the rubber meets the road. And, and, and Lutherans, I think, are more apt to say yes, whereas a Calvinist might not put it quite that way, but that might be getting in the weeds a little bit. I want to refresh what we talked about in our first video, where we talked about Ulrich Zwingli and sacramentalism, not to dwell on it again per se, but just to bring it up again, that when you look at Lutherans and the Reformed, 
you know, Calvin seemed to try to, you know, bring more to the table than Zwingli did, like come closer to Luther's point of view on the belief that Christ is present in the bread and wine at the Lord's Supper. Um, sometimes that's called a spiritual presence. Honestly, I don't know what all that means. Um, and so there still is a difference about what we believe about the real presence of Christ. And so I think there still is a disagreement about what is possible, what God can do sacramentally. Um, so maybe we could talk about that a little bit. Um, yeah, maybe just kind of, I mean, because that would still be a pretty big difference. I mean, I can't go to a Presbyterian church and take communion. I mean, I probably no. shouldn't, and they probably shouldn't yeah. take communion at my yeah, church. Yeah, that's, so. that, that's correct, because we're not, we're not in, and that shouldn't be seen as an offensive thing, because they should feel yeah. the same way. Like, we're right. not in agreement with what's actually going on here, and when you when you partake, I would say when you come to the altar, but the Reformed churches don't even have altars, so that's even a difference there in practice, and it's a theological difference, too, because it's reflected yeah. of something. Like, you you take as a corporate community as a church, and you're proclaiming that you are in agreement with what's going on. And if you can't even, re you don't really agree on the supper, it doesn't mean that you, you know, people are so offended by this, it doesn't mean that you think that, you know, they're not Christians, or it doesn't mean that you think they're, like, horrible people, or anything like that, but it means, like, you recognize that even though you want to have unity, you you just don't. You you don't understand this in the same way. Um, so I think, yeah, here's where Calvin, in so many ways, tries to kind of make a middle road between Luther and Zwingli. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, he still holds to Zwingli's kind of underlying assumptions. Mm. And so it really goes that direction. But but it is important to say Calvin's not he's he's really trying to kind of make a middle way in some ways. Um, so um, Zwingli, uh, when he's talking to the Lord's Supper, basically believed that the Lord's Supper is only a symbol. There's really nothing else going on. I know some people have argued differently in Zwingli. I've read through Zwingli, and it to me it's pretty clear. I think that it's just a symbol. And, and when you read through the transcripts of what, ha what happened at Marburg, it seems to be clear too. Anyway, Calvin tries to make a mediating view because Luther says, hey, this is my body. This is my blood. It is what it is. Jesus says it's his body, so it's his body. Jesus says it's his blood, so it's his blood. Well, Calvin says, well, Zwingli is essentially right that it's representative of the body and blood of Christ. It's not really his body and blood. But then Calvin also comes up with this other idea that, well, but something more is going on. Like it's not just a symbol. And particularly, he grabs onto what Paul says to the Corinthians when he's discussing communion, where Paul says that we partake of the body of Christ, and we partake of the blood of Christ, or commune with the body and commune with the blood, depending on the translation there. Um, so essentially, Calvin says, hey, I agree with Zwingli's interpretation of this is my body, really meaning this represents my body. But he says, I also agree with Luther's interpretation of 1 Corinthians. So like, how do those two things fit together? Mm -hmm. I'd say they really don't, but what he tries to do is come up with a way to say, well, maybe what it means is during the supper, those who have faith do commune with Jesus in some way. Mm. So for Calvin, the, it, it's, he uses language of the soul ascending to the heavenlies to receive or commune with Jesus in some special way. So there's something going on there. There's some kind of spiritual communing with Jesus, but it's really not through the elements themselves. It's really in faith that happens to coincide with one taking the elements. Mm. I think the really key place to, to flesh out the differences, because it can get a little confusing here, is the question of the communion of the ungodly, mm. uh, which is the what's going on, say, for the person who comes to the table and doesn't believe. And for Luther, because of his belief in universal grace, which means universal atonement, 
something is going on every time the word is preached, the spirit is at work. Every time um, baptism is administered, the spirit is at work. Every time Holy Communion is administered, the body and blood of Christ are there. Like that is objectively and universally true of those means of grace. Mm. And then faith for Luther is that which receives the benefits of those things. In other words, the things are objectively true and happening, but faith is that which objectively receives it. And mm. unbelief is that which pushes it away, right? So um, Paul's clear in 1 Corinthians that like people drink, eat and drink unto judgment, but Luther would say, well, the grace is there, the body and blood of Christ are there, but it's the fault of the person through unbelief. They do receive the body and blood, but they receive it unto condemnation. Hmm. which is specifically why Paul identifies it as they are guilty, not just of sinning against God, but guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Hmm. So there's, hmm. it's very specific there. But for Calvin, because of his doctrine of election, Calvin does not have this idea of universal grace in that sense, so that now the means of grace are not always, God is not always working through the means of grace. He is working when he desires to through the means of grace. So when the word is proclaimed, the spirit's not always working through the word to convert. He is for the elect, but not for the non-elect. Yeah. Um, and so that plays itself out in baptism. Baptism is not always something that actually gives grace. Um, you could say baptism does that for the elect, maybe, but not for the non-elect. Uh, some would even say that baptism actually condemns the non-elect even more. Hmm. And the Lord's Supper, you see that play out. This is just really an instance of this broader system, which it sounds like I'm kind of going all over the place, but it's part of this bigger system that you have to understand so that when we get to the question of the supper, then it's not um, just an issue of, well, how is Jesus present? It's part of this broader system. Yeah. So for Calvin, if grace is really only given to the elect, then it can't be something that is objective, that's just there for everyone. So what happens is now faith because it's that which is part of the, which is belongs only to the elect, faith becomes the determinative factor as to whether Jesus is there. Hmm. So, so that really is a pretty, and it sounds maybe on the surface it sounds like a minor difference, but it's a pretty big theological hmm. difference. And I think when you think about the issue of like limited atonement and and universal atonement, well, it may seem theoretical. I think when you get into the practical ways that this works itself out, it it, it does make a pretty significant difference. Yeah. Well, we'll have to wrap it up there. Uh, thanks very much for for joining me for this third video. And yeah, so I think that, you know, and in fact, my church, uh, First Lutheran in Houston, we were E and R for a while. That's Evangelical and Reformed. It was a denomination that got swallowed up in the United Church of Christ. Oh, interesting. And, and, and you're exactly right. Uh, whatever Lutheran identity we had. Now, granted, we were a German immigrant church, and our uh, church planner in the 1800s came from Basel, Switzerland. Uh, St. Croshona, which is like a famous kind of missionary school. So you already had that Reformed influence there. But you're right. Anytime Reformed and Lutheran officially come together, the Reformed always went out. Yep. And the Lutheran sacramentalism sort of dies a slow death. Um, but anyway, I'd like to think that we could be a little friendlier with our, our Presbyterian and Reformed friends from time to time. For sure. For these, sure. These differences. And Lutherans in particular really give a hard time to Calvinists. They just I've heard just the nastiest, silliest things said, you know, toward them. And I think, you know, yeah, we, ha we definitely have differences and they're important, but, um, anyway, we're, we're, we're pretty close, I guess, in, in many ways, but, uh, well, Jordan, thanks again for, for joining me. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is fun. Okay. 
Well, thanks for joining me for this set of three videos on where Lutherans are different from some of uh, the traditions we come from and some that emerged over time, and what really it is to be a Lutheran. Even if you're not Lutheran, I hope it sort of helps you to understand where your tradition falls uh, on the grand spectrum of theology. So thanks for joining me for these videos, and thanks especially to Dr. Jordan Cooper of Justin Center, uh, Justin Center Ministries, justincenter.org, for, uh, for joining me on all these videos. Until next time, take care.